IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about the albums of 2013. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He will be following the Hotel Year Foxing Tour like it's the emo Grateful Dead. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I promise I've spent all morning trying to come up with a joke for the equivalent of like getting recognized in the parking lot and being offered whippets for the emo revival. I don't, I, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's like being handed a yerba mate or something like that but uh i do i do nitrous i do a nitrous truck show up at emo shows is that like a thing i mean like the nitrous mafia <laughs> yeah because that, that, that's a big thing in the jam world no the, and the, the, it's funny because like you know because we're tulsa king fans there was like a nitrous <laughs> mafia subplot on on tulsa king which is how you know that's that's uh that's arrived. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, like you, like the show ends and these people show up with tanks and you pay like 10, 15 bucks and like you suck on the hose for like a little bit or, or you like inhale like from a balloon and like you're, you're just totally going crazy for about, you know, I don't know how long, like not that long. I've, I've not huffed myself, but like I've, I've walked over bodies of people who have been oh, huffing. Oh, jeez. <laughs> does that happen in the emo world is no, there any equivalent the, to that the emo, the emo world, world is like highly like drug and alcohol free uh you know the shows are i mean they kind of have to be given that with the younger audience they got they they have to find shows to do like all ages i mean that's obviously not the case with this particular one but yeah i don't know maybe there's gonna be maybe maybe emo sixth wave is gonna be riding on a wave of uh nitrous but yeah, I'm 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 familiar enough with that subplot of the Tulsa King, which is it's a phenomenal subplot. Their whole treatment oh, yeah. of drugs on that show is just so written from the perspective of like someone who might live in Sylvester Stallone's brain in 2023. Uh, I'm, da- I'm, I'm they were ahead of the curve on Nitrous, though. <laughs> I haven't seen that uh, brought up as a plot point on on any prestige TV show. So I will give them credit for that. Like the nitrous thing. That is like a real thing out in the world. And, uh, I don't know. There needs to be like a, a Sopranos of nitrous. I think, you know, like organized crime, but it's nitrous. Like that's just such a dirty topic. That's appropriate. I think for 2023. Yeah. We, we're really setting the, we're setting the course for 2024 prestige TV. I just want to be very clear here. Are you, are you saying that the Tulsa King is prestige TV or that nitrous is just something that prestige TV won't touch? Like that's the dividing line between, you know, I think it is because of uh, Taylor Sheridan's involvement. You know, he is one of the big uh, TV kingpins. I mean, Yellowstone, Mm -hmm. is that a prestige TV show? Ah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I mean, we're at a point now where prestige TV is so degraded. I don't really know how to define it. Like, like, how do we define it? Is it like something that's on HBO? That that for sure is prestige TV. But like, is FX still prestige TV at this point? That's a that's know. a great question. Maybe maybe we go into like TV cast with that one. But I think that like yeah. I, th- I think it's like to the, like calling Yellowstone prestige TV. If we're gonna like circle back and like make it relevant to the show, which I do believe we can, because look, I would love to talk about Yellowstone, Tulsa King, but it's sort of like calling like the 1975 or Vampire Weekend indie rock in that it still feels kind of true, even if it's not technically true. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's really interesting that we have this hotel year foxing tour which is totally up your alley mm-hmm. and yet i was able to redirect it to tulsa <laughs> well you know like i i figured you had like a good five ten minutes on this tour i mean it's an anniversary tour this is like the hotel year coming back mm-hmm. I, when was the last time they toured i mean it's like uh, when goodness came out that would be what was that 2016 like 20, 2016 so like they haven't toured since then, yeah, right? I think they might have done some touring into 2017, perhaps. And they came back a few years ago for uh, the Counterintuitive Records uh, Fest. Like, they had a day-long festival in Boston. Like, Oso Oso played, Prince Daddy and the Hyena, and so forth. But they haven't toured 
since like 2016, <laughs> I think, or 17. The last time I saw him play was at Pitchfork Festival 2016. Uh, and I think they did in 2016 an opening run for Jimmy Eat World. Um, but yeah, they've not been around for a while, have shown no real interest in, you know, making new music. Christian's in a totally different place in their lives. And um, this, yeah, it's interesting because this is like a joint anniversary tour. Foxing's The Albatross came out in late 2013. Um, and, you know, I've known about this happening for probably a few months now, which is probably why, you know, the, the, the iron's not hot, so to speak. And I've just got like kind of mixed feelings about in general, like, look, I'm going to be there. Like I might, I'm not, I might go to every show in Southern California. Um, but you know, like this past week there, it was also the 10th anniversary of the world is a beautiful place. And I'm no longer afraid to die. Uh, whenever with F ever shout to Patrick Lyons at a stereo gum. And you know, that he, he mentioned how, when that, the review ran at Pitchfork, like two months after that album dropped, it was like a 7.8 in the B or C slot. And that was like, super important apparently like i always suspected it but like i never quite saw it from an outside perspective and you know i guess that kind of plays into the clearly unhealthy uh personal investment i have in seeing you know these bands succeed which by and large on a commercial level they haven't like the only reason this anniversary tour can happen is because it's a joint tour like i don't think foxing or the hotel year on their own could you know demand that that kind of audience, like as a co-headliner, they're playing the same venue that Sunny Day Real Estate did in San Diego. And so I don't know, like I'm, I'm, I'm like excited. I'm happy that, you know, they're finally getting a bag. But like when I go to that show, I'm going to be like super nervous about the crowd. It's like, uh, did people really like like this music? Are people still listening to this music? I mean, I'm sure they will. It always ends up okay, but um, like you're worried that people aren't going to show up. Like, what? Like, yeah, what you, like what worried I'm about? worried that like this music that like I cared so much about and like that I spent so much of my like, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about 2013, that's the year I kind of pivoted towards like covering emo for the most part. And it's like I just hope for these bands' sake that like when they come out, there's excitement about it. You know, there's excitement online, of course, but I've I've always been just a little bit like. Un, uh, like unsure about how much people in real life, you know, vibe with this music. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because you know we're we're going to be talking uh, about the albums of 2013, and I I wrote a column this week for Uprocks where I ranked uh, th the 30 best records of uh, 2013, and I tried to obviously talk about my favorites, but leaven that a little bit like with what seems important in retrospect mm -hmm. and i have to say like i didn't put either one of these records in my top 30 and i i think you could make the case that maybe i should have put the hotel well year that came out in 2014 in so you're you're, oh, you're, okay. you're well, off the hook okay. there <laughs> i mean because like the foxing record i don't think of that as like their best record it's not like their it's, second best it's record. not and here's the interesting part it's like the one that uh the like the most foxing fans are into and you know the band has talked about many a time that how difficult it is for them to evolve past songs like rory and the medic which are like they're by far most popular songs but like songs i don't really like that much and i've told them like i don't really like the medic they got to play that every show though um i mean they wrote it when they were teens and um it, it, it you know with foxing and the world is and like a lot of bands in this realm there's this circumstance where they make these very popular or beloved songs when they're like 18 or whatever and the fans glom onto that and by the time they've evolved into something more interesting that fan base has moved on and they've not been really absorbed by like the indie sphere so they're kind of marooned the hotel year never really had to deal with that because they stopped making music in 2016 but like a lot of these bands who did keep going they just sort of plateaued even though they've made better music yeah, I, it'll be interesting. I think at the shows that you're at, they're gonna do fine. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, the California will be fine. They're they're actually playing in Minneapolis before they get to you because it looks like they're doing dates in November and in February. Yeah, it's like two different things, and they're playing here in November. And I like I don't know how often either one of those bands have like played here. Like Foxing, I know hasn't really headlined here 
very much. They were they played here with Manchester Orchestra, <laughs> but like you know, I, I've lived here since 2015, and I don't. Rec- I'm pretty sure like they didn't really ever come here, uh, in you know, in the back half of the 2010s. And same with the Hotel Year. Like if they were if Hotel Year played here, it was probably a room like Seventh Street Entry, which is like 150 people or so. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know. I mean. These things are always hard to measure because the people who love these bands are very vocal about it. <laughs> you don't say. And that can that can be distorting in terms of like how popular they actually are, but I don't know. I mean, I get the feeling that there's probably going to be like a lot of younger people who have heard about these bands or especially like Hotel Year. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're going to look at this as their opportunity to see them. So they might get a lot of that audience. Like I could I could see a lot of 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds showing up. Yeah, circle of life. Who read the Ian Cohen, <laughs> you know, when they were in grade school, the Ian Cohen review, and now they can go see the band uh, for real. Um, let's get to our mailbag segment here. We want to go through this relatively quickly because we got a lot to talk about with 2013, a very interesting music year. Uh, you want to read uh, our letter here, Ian? Yeah, absolutely. So... Our mailbag question comes from Matthew from Libertyville, Illinois, and I know that city because I remember reading that uh, Tom Morello and uh, Ad- Adam Jones from Tool went to high school there. That's the only reason I know Libertyville. So, oh wow, yeah, Matthew, Libertyville, hell of an indie cast town. Um, that's a that's a Chicago suburb, I believe. It is. In uh, Matthew, hey, hi guys, Matthew from the northern suburbs of Chicago here. So. True indeed. Uh, all all the dreadful reviews of HBO's new show, The Idol, remind me of another fictional HBO, quote, rock show, if you want to call it that, Vinyl. Like The Idol, if I remember correctly, it was also pretty poorly reviewed, although not as negatively and for different reasons. Did either of you watch it, its one and only season, and did you enjoy it? I found it very entertaining despite all the cliches slash ridiculous plot lines. Definitely a bu- guilty pleasure for me, though maybe it's just I like Bobby Cannavale. Ray Romano, pretty much anything that takes place in the 70s era rock and roll setting, whether it be fictional or real. So thank you for for your uh, email here, Matthew. Matthew is asking if I watched a show that involved Martin Scorsese (laughs) and Terrence Winter from The Sopranos set in 70s New York about basically classic rock and the record industry. Of course I watched this show. <laughs> this show came out, I believe it was 2016. That, this that show sounds about out. right. Maybe, maybe 2017. And like Matthew says, it was on for one season. I don't remember if I watched the entire season, but I definitely watched multiple episodes. And uh, it, was, it was terrible. <laughs> it was a really bad show. Um, and the thing that was bad about Vinyl that I think is actually good about the idol is that on vinyl the idea is to show like how fucking awesome <laughs> this world is and how fucking cool Bobby Carnival is and they really stack the deck in his favor like basically like Bobby Carnival he plays this um like record label guy and he Hold on see I think you need to say what this guy's name is on the show Oh, do, do you know it? Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking at it's like Richie Finstra. Like that's a really great <laughs> '70s rock name. Richie, Richie. He's playing Richie, and um, basically he's like responsible for discovering like every significant band <laughs> of of this era. Like I think they connect him to like the Velvet Underground and the New York Dolls, and you know he's you know shooting pool with like Sid Vicious or something. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I made that part up, but it's like it's like a lot of stuff like that. And it just becomes, like, really tiresome to watch. Like, if you're watching a show about how, like, fucking cool somebody is, I just don't think that works for a TV show. The strength of The Idol is that it's showing, like, how craven and awful the pop music world is. And I just think that's, like, a better strategy to take. Like, I think in anything music-related, if you're in a fictional... uh, uh, you know, setting, and you have to show something that's great. I think that is always really hard to do. It's always easier to show something that's bad, mm-hmm. I think, and that's the strength of the idol. And I have to say, you know, the idol is better than vinyl. 
Okay, that's not high praise, but it is better than vinyl. Put that on the fucking trailer. Like, better than vinyl, <laughs> Stephen Hyde and Uprock. It is better than vinyl. I've only seen one episode. I don't know if you've seen the show yet. I've only seen one episode. There's been three, I think, so far. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it looks good. It's, like, well shot. The cast is, like, really good. You know, Jane Adams in particular, plays this uh, record... Uh, executive who's like really cynical and kind of evil and she's she's pretty funny on the show the weird thing about uh the idol is that the weekend is like so non-charismatic <laughs> on the show and you know people have like said he's a bad actor i'm gonna withhold judgment on that i wonder like because he's playing this creepy character mm-hmm. so he's not supposed to be like a likable guy and I just wonder, like, maybe he's an amazing actor because maybe The Weeknd actually has all of this magnetism, like, which you would assume because he's a big pop star. And he's such a good actor that he's able to, like, restrain that for the sake of this role. And maybe that's going to pay off down the road. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't hate it as much as a lot of people seem to. I, I, I think it's a pretty watchable show, at least based on the first episode. But, I, you know, having said that, I haven't felt strongly compelled to watch the next two yet i mean i think i'll do that but maybe i won't i don't know like have you seen any of this yet no i've I've only watched like clips of this show and this leads me to believe that you know for all for as much as this show is just getting slammed in the press for various and you know what seem like very valid reasons it makes me think that like the weekend is kind of the photo negative of harry styles like i think it would be fair to call those two the biggest pop stars or biggest male pop stars going in that they're like kind of boring and dumb, but for equal and opposite reasons, like the weekend is just kind of very boring in his portrayal of like, you know, sex crazed debauchery. Like he has just like very basic ideas about like what's dark and like what's, you know, sexy and what's like, um, you know, living on the edge. I remember seeing, I remember we're not going to somehow talk about Kissland in this 2013 episode, which I thought that guy was cooked at that album. But I remember seeing him on tour, uh, and it was just like he showed a lot of like you know Japanese porn while he played or whatever. And it's just like I, it seemed like he was trying to make a point, but I just think he wanted to watch porn while he performed. And I think that's <laughs> sort of the idol, and I guess Sam Levinson in you know kind of a nutshell there where. They, I think the issue with the idol is that it thinks it's a lot smarter than it really is. It's like trying to make a point about society. Um, you know, the same way like Euphoria wants to make a point about society, but anything you hear about Sam Levinson, it's more just he wants to see Sydney Sweeney topless as much as possible. And I think this kind of gets into like why, when it comes to, um, you know, television or movies about the music industry or just about like, the process of being in a band, you either need to go like full on documentary or mockumentary because like, otherwise you have these, you have this dissonance with reality, which makes it impossible to focus on anything else. That happened a lot with what I, the little I've seen of Daisy Jones in the six. You mentioned this with like vinyl, how you like, they'll have like one guy who's responsible for signing the velvet underground. And, you know, he also discovered the New York dolls and, you know, similarly with like Daisy Jones and the six, it's like, Oh, by the way, like we rejiggered this. So like their best friend somehow invents disco in uh, New York city. And so for, I mean, maybe that's like entertaining if like, you're not like us and you don't have like super granular knowledge about how the music industry actually works. But um, yeah. And also, I don't know about, like, I've heard the songs on The Idol, and this gets to something that really, really I I can't get past in most TV shows or movies about the music industry. It's that they show, like, an artist who's supposed to be, like, super popular and assumed to be awesome, and it's just, like, the shittiest music imaginable. Like, Drive Shaft, Visiting Day, you you get that sort of effect where it's, like, this music... Like, it's supposed to suck, right? Like, I'm not supposed to believe this is good. That's what I was trying to get at before. The problem with any TV show or movie about a band is, you know, talking about Daisy Jones and the Six. Like, you watch that show and you're like, okay, this isn't Stevie Nicks. You know, like, like this actress playing a Stevie Nicks-type character, like, she's not as good as Stevie Nicks at being a rock star. So, 
there's just a disconnect that instantly happens if like the person in the show or movie is supposed to be great. But if there's someone who's like trying to be great and they're failing, that's a much easier bar to clear. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're trying to be Stevie Nicks and you're failing and you can make it about, you know, trying to be successful and but just not having the talent or the charisma to do it, like you can portray that. But it's really hard to portray, you know, a great musician or a great athlete authentically in a movie or TV show. Mm. I mean, that's why, you know, the movie Air? Yeah. When that came out, like, they don't show Michael Jordan. Because if they did, it would instantly (laughs) fall apart. You'd be like, that's not fucking Michael Jordan. (laughs) I know who Michael Jordan is. Yeah. You know, like, so they just show the back of his head, and they take him out of the center of the story. That's what you have to do. It's like, Walk Hard is a great music movie because he's not Johnny Cash, and we're not supposed to believe he's Johnny Cash. He's... A buffoonish character who's making fun of the cliches of these type of movies. That's why it works. But if you're trying to like recreate something that's great and you want the audience to think it's great, it just never works. Like you, you can't pull that off. Yeah. Like Almost Famous, I think, did a good job with that in that like the band in that movie, Stillwater. Yeah. Like there's they're they're like kind of an average band. Like they're not like Fever Dog <laughs> is not supposed to be a great song. You know, and it's authentic for that reason. If if the idea was, oh, this band is is as good as Led Zeppelin, it'd be like, okay, well, they're they're not. Yeah. But if they're as good as like Fog Hat, like, <laughs> okay, I can buy that. You know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if like uh, Fever Dogs is good as Slow Ride. Um, That's true. Yeah, I mean, what what is though? <laughs> I kind of slagged uh, Fog Hat there. Fog Hat has some jams. Yeah. Slow Ride and. Uh, <laughs> Tulsa King, Foghat, we're, we like are totally reneging on our promise from last episode to drive down the yeah. demographic age. Yeah, I know. We did two TikTok leads <laughs> in a row, and now we totally have reverted back. Um, let's get to our main topic this week. We're going to be talking about the albums of 2013. And like I said earlier, I, um, I wrote a column this week for Uproxx where I ranked my 30 best albums of that year. I I almost said favorite, but I don't think I did strict favorites. I tried to have a wider view, although it's like sixty five percent my favorites and thirty five percent taking a you know sort of a consensus look at the year. But I wanted to talk about this with you, and we're not going to rank albums. We're just kind of we're going to look at certain categories that we've made up uh, to talk about records from this year because it's a really interesting year. I mean, we've talked about this before on the show, but. This feels like the beginning of the 2010s this year. Like where, on one hand, you have this class of artists who put out their first record in 2013, or maybe like their breakthrough record, and they became the defining artists of the 2010s, talking about groups like Haim Mm -hmm. and the 1975 and Lord and Charlie XCX and all the way down the line. And then you also had like artists that, we're coming out of the aughts and now they're in the middle of their career. And like, there's a lot of like fascinating flawed records mm-hmm. that came out this year that I actually really like. And we're going to talk about that as, as we get into this, but I don't know. Do you have any overall thoughts on 2013? I mean, does this year stand up for you as, as well as like being a really interesting year in recent music history well absolutely you know i think that like 2011 is where the 2000s ended that's when we saw of course the introduction of artists like you know frank ocean and you know the weekend and that's when uh, the 1975's first single came out i think they were still known as the slowdown when sex dropped um but yeah 2013 is just a that I mean, that is a before and after year for me personally. I look back on some of the mixes I made for myself, and the first half of the year was still like you know all indie stuff. Like I think if we were just going off the first half, probably waking on a pretty days is would be like my number one album. And then in the middle of that year, the dead fucking center. That's when um I started to learn about this little uh, thing called emo <laughs> revival. And you know, my I, honestly, like that, I I don't want it. Like I. I'm you. I'm not using hyperbole when I said that. Like completely shifted my life over the past ten years. That changed everything as far as like how I viewed music and how I covered music, and you know, just 
what I was as a writer. So, I mean, that is a real, like, this is probably the most important year of my life as like a music writer. And the thing about it is that a lot of the records, when I look back on them that came out in that, you know, emo realm, some, a lot of them like are not that great. Like they're good. They're important. But like, I had trouble saying, oh yeah, like intersections by Intuit over. That's a classic. I mean, it sort of is, but it's like, not something I'm going to nominate for any categories here, but or the dangerous summer. Oh God, Catholic girls. That song is so fucking good. Um, I don't, I don't know yeah. if I've heard any other music from that band. Um, I just, I, I, the only thing I vaguely remember is them having beef with absolute punk, <laughs> which is also shout property of Zach. We cannot have a 2013 episode without mentioning that. But, um, yeah, this, this this year is interesting because, like, everything we've talked about on previous episodes about, like, you know, churches happening and Heim happening and, like, indie rock going in a more pop, synthy direction is true. And, like, conversely, like, also going in a more, quote, feeling stuff music uh, sort of thing is happening as well. So we have these two concurrent uh, trends, which I think have really dictated more or less everything in the time since. You know, when you were talking about in the middle of the year making this pivot to emo revival, mm. it reminded me that in the middle of 2013, I had a similar pivot to jam band stuff. I wrote a column for Grantland in June of that year about Fish <laughs> and defending Fish and making the case that they're an important band. And I, I think I saw Fish for the first time that summer. So... I had a similar thing in that year, completely different kind of music, of mm. course, but that really rewired my thinking and, and thinking about the jam world and also just thinking about what bands do live, live recordings, and that becoming a big part of just how I listen to music. So I didn't write about that in my column because it wasn't pertinent to albums, but that is an interesting thing that we both had mm -hmm these shifts in our tastes and like what we wrote about. Yeah. And both Grantland columns I wrote about, I, like there was so little emo coverage that I could actually call, uh, the wonder years and a great big pile of leaves pop punk in, uh, Grantland and not get like completely trashed for it. Like, I think people were just so happy to see those bands covered, but yeah, shout out to Grantland. Oh gosh. See, and I wrote about the Wonder Years too that year, and also Modern Baseball yeah. in the same Hell yeah. column. Um, Wonder Years just missed the cut of my top thirty. Mm -hmm. I ended up putting like the Pup record K in there, kind of cheating, even though that, that came out in Canada in two thousand thirteen, which I realized. But you know, <laughs> I have international readers. We have a lot of Canadian readers. You know, I'll, I'll give the I'll tip my cap to them, um, and. Pup just being an example of a band that really did not get covered all that much or talked about at all, like in the what you want to call prestige music publications. And of course, now, 10 years later, seems like one of like the important bands that emerged during that period. So they're, they're an example of a band whose stock has gone up a lot in the past 10 years. And then there's other artists who have gone down a little bit and we might touch on some of that as we get into this, but let's get to our categories here. Uh, our first category is most influential or prescient album of, of 2020 of, of 2013, or we're calling this the most 2023 album of 2013. And again, this is a record that like might've been acclaimed in 2013, but like now we just feel is like all over the place. Like you could just see its fingerprints on a lot of different artists. What is your record for this category? This was a, this was a harder one to do than I anticipated because if this was like two or three years ago or like pre pandemic, let's just say like the obvious answer would be something like, you know, Lord's pure heroin or uh Heim, you know, days are gone. But in the, you know, especially with Lord making, you know, uh solar power and album that, like really kind of shifted where her career was going. I feel like some of those records, like they, they peaked a little too early in their influence to, you know, celebrate them on like a 10 year anniversary show. But, you know, as I was looking back on the year endless, um, I kind of had to step outside of the 
um, you know, indie or guitar focused sphere. Uh, and the one that stands out to me is like the one that is still going and is still, you know, is still coloring every single thing that's happening in this genre. I had to go with Earl Sweatshirt's Doris. Um, this is maybe one that's been a little overshadowed by I don't like shit, I don't go outside or some rap songs, but I actually interviewed Earl Sweatshirt back in 2013. I forgot about that completely. It was not a great interview. Um, <laughs> but it, this this kind of set the trajectory, not just for like the, um, you know, the, the, the establishment of Odd Future as this critical and popular, um, you know, this, this monolith. Because I think that was the year Tyler, the creator, put out Cherry Bomb. And it wasn't that well received. But... Earl Sweatshirt. I think it was Wolf that year. Was it Wolf? Maybe. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Well, either way, it was like one that was just like not that well received. But like what Doris did, and I'm saying influential slash prescient. I don't know if I completely love what it did, but this set this set the trajectory for rap to be very insular, of kind of mumbly, but not like an amigos mumble rap way. And just, like, removing drums from production. Like, when you think about all the... A good deal of, like, the critically acclaimed rap music that comes out now. Whether it's, like, you know, Wiki or Mike or Navi or... you know, Or not Navi, sorry. Mavi or, like, Navy Blue. It's, it gets into this kind of Earl sweatshirt. Like, what I've seen derisively called, like, pots and pans rap. Where it doesn't bang. It's just, like, a guy being very thoughtful uh, you know, kind of muttering and it's very insular. And I think that kind of limits, we talked about this in, you know, the Billy Woods, uh, discussion last week who I think, you know, he predates Earl Sweatshirt, but kind of comes in that same sort of mode of like, you know, big event rap records, you know what I mean? Cause there are a lot of event rap records that came out that year. Nothing was the same Jesus, which we'll surely talk about. But, um, this one, I kind of think got into the small, this kind of kicked off a small ball era of rap and, we're going to hear like Earl clones uh, probably for the next 10 to 20 years. So um, not a record I love that much, but when I, I think that's got to be the choice. Yeah. I, I, the, this album was on my list and I, I made some more points to what you were just talking about where it, it does feel like this album helped to create the blueprint for like what critically acclaimed rap records were going to be in the 2010s. You know, it seems like that's kind of like where critics are. Like if it's a, if it's a record that in some way resembles Doris, I think like that, it, that really set the tone for that. And it is interesting to think about Odd Future at this time where, you know, they come into the 2010s as I think like the last stand of like openly provocative, like pop music, yeah. like where the goal is to offend people. And Tyler, the creator has like a little bit of that on Wolf still, like carrying over from Goblin, you know, which was like this just think piece generating machine. I think that was 2011 that, that, that record was. came out. And um, it is interesting to see this shift and just like what it says about pop culture in general, like how that kind of provocation just totally went out of style. Mm-hmm. And like we really haven't had anything like that since. Uh, to that degree. I mean, you know, we have the idol, but I don't know, it's not the same thing no. as like what Odd Future was doing or like what Eminem was doing right. before before them. Um, but I'm going to go back to a record that you mentioned and you said peaked early. I'm going to disagree with you. I, I, I think the answer is Days Are Gone mm. by Haim. Um, and the thing about this record is that it's the aesthetic of that record is so pervasive now in indie music that maybe it, in some ways... It seems invisible. Yeah. You know, you, you listen to Days Are Gone and it doesn't seem as innovative as it did at the time in terms of just taking classic rock influences and combining it with like Shania Twain, Destiny's Child, music of that nature that was just, you know, it, in the not too like distant past before 2013, that would have been verboten to have on anything that was considered indie or indie pop or whatever, however else you wanted to define uh, Haim. And I just feel like if that record didn't exist, I don't think indie music or however we're... It's so weird to describe this as indie music because (laughs) it doesn't really feel like it. But like music that's covered by Pitchfork and Stereo Gum, let's define it that way, 
it would sound completely different, I think, without Days Are Gone. It, it's alt, it, it is such, I think, a building block of like indie music, pop music, just music in general in the popular sphere. So I see what you mean to a degree that maybe it's peaked too early, but I, I still feel like that if you, if you just look at like what is acclaimed, what is popular, Haim is all over that still in 2023 so to me I, I i think earl sweatshirt that's a great answer but i think heim for me is still like such an important touchstone from that year on music now yeah i think that um i think that you're absolutely correct in that it's like so pervasive that it becomes like almost invisible like i honestly think that you could actually consider like daisy something like daisy jones in the sixth in a very bizarre way an extension of it because I don't it, – it, it sort of felt like Fleetwood Mac was kind of understood as this, I don't know, like consensus touchstone before 2013. But it's definitely like going forward, like we're never going to have to argue for like Fleetwood Mac's place in the canon ever again or like Cheryl Crow or Shania Twain, you know. It was a shift in Fleetwood Mac. It wasn't rumors Fleetwood Mac. Right. It was Tango in the Night. Right. Good point. Fleetwood Mac. It wasn't like the 70s, like your dad's album. It was like the 80s version of it. And that was an important shift. And we've, we've been in that zone now for 10 years. Uh, and I kind of hope we're getting out of it because it's, it's starting to feel a little tired. I mean, I like Days Are Gone. I think it's a really good record. And I like a lot of what it's it spawned. But it, it, it's been the sound for like a long time now. And it, it, it kind of feels like we need to move on to something else maybe. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's get to our next category. And this is something, uh, maybe it's the opposite of our first category. It's the most 2013 album of 2013. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, we're saying that this is the album that we most associate with this year. I mean, you could construe it as saying that this is the most dated album Mm -hmm. of this year. Uh, But I'm curious to hear what you have to say. I have an answer that came to mind immediately, (laughs) but I'm wondering if it if it aligns with yours. Like, what is your choice for this? So I I really made an attempt to get uh, like super kind of like in 2013, like what the culture meant at that time. Uh, You know, just kind of more of like a social text. But when I like take a step back and like look at like dated, I think that word always gets a bad rap because it assumes that something hasn't held up. But it also can mean that this was just so on the money in terms of its tr- uh, like what it did at the time that you can't remove it from that year. And it, and so when I, 2013 was the last year I wasn't full time in school or working, so. And this is going to sound completely crazy. I spent like a lot of time just like walking around the Glendale Galleria. I'm not sure why I did that. I think maybe it was because it was air conditioned and just gave me something to do. And so that means I went to a lot of clothing stores. And boy, let me tell you, the one album you could not escape in 2013 was Disclosure's Settle. Um, I When I think of 2013 and like, you know, what songs were happening in clothing stores, what album, what songs were getting synced what was happening in terms of electronic music, you cannot get more 2013 than Settle. Um, you know, we talked about like the 10 year anniversary of that fairly recently. Um, it is, uh, it may have kind of influenced music going forward in kind of a weak sauce way, but I also think it was sort of an endpoint for a lot of trends that were occurring at that time as well. You know, you hear that one song defeated no more from the guy from friendly fire or friendly fires. Um, you got like a Luna George on there. You got like Sam Smith prior to being like an, like a massive pop star. When I'm thinking of like, what's going to be a 2013 era, um, movie, like what the cues are going to be. Uh, you got to go with uh disclosure set. Although that being said, I think that movie Zula, uh, that came out last year that had 2013 cues. They had like Migos, Hannah Montana, but um, I don't think that's the one that really defines 2013 as much as Disclosure did. So that's a really good answer. It's not my answer. My answer is, you know, we, we were just talking about like, like Haim, Lord, 1975, these young artists who emerged in 2013 who came to define the decade and who are still famous in 2023 well there's another artist who emerged in 2013 and 
I would argue that there was a time where this person was bigger than all the artists we just mentioned. And in 2023, it's almost like this person is MIA. And that person is Chance the Rapper. Acid rap. I thought you were gonna say I thought you were gonna say magical clouds. Oh no, not magical clouds. <laughs> Chance the Rapper, Acid Rap. And you know, I wrote about this in my column. I I think that the that the most telling indicator of how esteemed Chance the Rapper was in the mid two thousand tens is the fact that Donnie Trumpet in the social experiment, their album Surf, which does anyone remember this album? Yeah. Does anyone remember this yeah, album at I, all? But I, I do. Donnie Trumpet <laughs> and the Social Experiment was ranked number 21 on the best albums of 2015 on Pitchfork's list. Yeah. Donnie Trumpet. They had to change the that name. By, they had to change that name, by the way. <laughs> it's only because of Chance the Rapper. Yeah. That's how much people loved Acid Rap. And I just feel like that is such a... Uh, you know, a remnant of like early second term Barack Obama, mm-hmm. you know, like where you still have like a little bit of that sort of centrist enthusiasm from his first term, you know, that idea of, you know, America can be a melting pot and we're all together, you know, that enthusiasm, which of course by the end of his term, second term was completely gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it still existed a little bit in 2013. I think that album, Acid Rap, dropped like three months after the second term inauguration. Um, yeah, I just feel like that is such a remnant of like 2013. I guess I'll expand it to like mid 2010s. And uh, yeah, Chance the Rapper, like where is he now? I mean, I, it's it, I, he had the wife guy thing, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, but it just seems like he fell off a cliff. I mean, there was a time though, like where he seemed like, untouchable. oh, he's, yeah, he's the, he's like the man. Like he is like the next big thing in rap. And uh, it did not happen. Oh, I think. Oh, it totally happened. It, it. I want to be well, clear. Well, it didn't. It, it didn't happen. It, it, but it didn't get. It wasn't sustained. No, it was a very much a product of its time. Yeah, I think even before Coloring Book, which I, which was you know the 2016 one that solidified him as uh, you know a very short lived generational talent. I think he like headlined Pitchfork Festival, and it was either 14 or 15. This was prior to Coloring Book. He was that big, especially in Chicago, and. Um, I fucking hated Chance the Rapper. Like, I hated his voice <laughs> so fucking much. I hated the voice. I hated the beats. I hated the kind of cloying, like, churchy sort of, uh, you know, youth counselor vibe of Chance the Rapper. Um, you know, and it, you're, you're right in that it, I, I think Coloring Book might be a little more dated. I think acid rap people will look back on people look back on that still with like good vibes like yeah you know he was still kind of up and coming back then and the excitement was justified like i feel like coloring book that's really where like people are going to disown that one but uh, that's a very good choice that's a very good choice for two most 2013 album and coloring book can you imagine called coloring book that was the title people were like comparing him to like stevie wonder for that reason i mean oh my god yeah (laughs) it's crazy yeah um so our next category is very straightforward it's yeezus yay or nay we're gonna yay or nay yeezus this is the album that i think we can both agree that in the moment was the most exciting record to come out in 2013 Mm. It was the most fun record to write about and to talk about. And it's a record that is at least in the conversation for the best album of 2013. I didn't put it at number one on my list for reasons that I'll get to in a moment. But obviously Kanye has had his thing in recent years and maybe that colors how people feel about this record. So Jesus, yay or nay? Where do you fall? Or is it Kanye or Kanye? Yeah, that doesn't work either way. But um, so I, I listened to this record recently and, you know, there are, regardless like what you think of Kanye right now, there's like a lot of music that I feel somewhat shitty listening to, even in private. Uh, but with like Kanye or like Morrissey, like they're not, it's not like, you know, straight up sex creep stuff, which makes it very difficult for me to listen to with a clean conscience. Uh, but with this album, um, 
of all the Kanye records, I feel like this is the easiest one to revisit. Also the one that still maintains the same impact when I first heard it. When I play this album, and I'm going to listen to it at the gym, there's nowhere else where I'm going to listen to this album. It feels like I'm like Kevin Gates trying to start a car battery with my bare hands. And what makes this album hold up really well, in my opinion, it's kind of counterintuitive where... Like, the music of Kanye West is so exclusively about Kanye West, it's impossible to separate the, um, you know, art from the artist. But even up to My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, it tried to present him as this, like, kind of complex, even likable dude in parts. Uh, Yeezus is just straight up nasty. It is, there is, like, nothing redeeming about Kanye West on this album. His politics are, like, super, like, super kind of, nasty his sexual uh views are super nasty and the album itself just sounds super super distorted it's like 10 songs 35 minutes and it still sounds like the most exciting music ever made when it's actually playing and i think people hold on to this one when they're like when they think that there's maybe some shred of hope that kanye can make good music again because he was there, like he he was every bit an asshole, like every bit like a terrible, irredeemable person on this record. But the music was still great, and now you think to yourself, well, I don't know, maybe he's still got that in him, because you're never going to get another late registration by any means. You're never going to get a my be- beautiful dark twisted fantasy. It's within the realm of possibility that he might just make an album so musically uh, engrossing that it could justify the other shit, which he was doing as recently as 2013. So high yay on that. So I'm giving this album a a yay as well. And I agree, when this album is on, and I'm talking about On Sight, Black Skinhead, Bound 2, really like the second half of the record, uh, it's a brilliant record. And I think it stands like with anything that came out in the 2010s. What I was reminded of revisiting the record is that there's also some real dog shit tracks on this this record. And I'm going to say, I really think I Am a God is one of the worst songs to ever appear on a record that is considered a masterpiece. I thought you were going to go for I'm In It or something. I Am a God is so fucking stupid. (laughs) And it's a song that I think in the moment you listen to and you thought, kind of like what you were just saying, that this is like Kanye exposing the worst side of himself unapologetically, that there was maybe some sense of like self-awareness in that song. And I just feel like he has no presumption of self-awareness anymore. So that song is just like this idiotic expression of like petulance like where he is literally like like go like doing like the napoleon dynamite like gah like into the microphone (laughs) it is so obnoxious like i cannot defend that song but i still put it in my top five because on site black skinhead like the best songs on that record are absolutely brilliant but i have to single out i am a god for derision because that is a fucking horrible song I will say that it is everything you said, and that's why I think it's awesome. It's like just it's like a dumb hardcore song. It's like I I, I don't. The Do you word... actually listen to it though when you listen to Jesus? Like when you're at the gym, are you like I'm gonna I'm gonna like muddle through I am a god? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not thinking like oh <laughs> let me like break this down. Like let me break down. I'm like make heavy thing go up. That's what I'm a god do does for me. But even musically, it's not good. Musically, it's not good. Lyrically, it's horrible. Mm. I don't know. I think that song's indefensible at this point. Yeah, that, it's like not even funny. Like, <laughs> like I think at the moment people thought like, oh, the croissants line, my boy, dad. that, yeah, boy, is that memeable. is dated. <laughs> it's so stupid. Yeah, it's such a stupid song. But overall, I'm yay. Yeah, on Jesus. Let's get to our next category. Let's talk underrated, most underrated album. We're not going to do overrated now, because. I think the overrated albums are obvious from 2013. I mean, we talked about Random Access Memories. You know, that's the album that everyone says is overrated. I think that is a little wrongheaded. But at the same time, that did win a ton of Grammys and topped a bunch of lists. And I don't necessarily feel like it deserved all of that. Anyway, we don't need to beat up on that record anymore. Or Justin Timberlake 2020 experience. Yeah. 
JT's taken enough hits. So let's skip to overrated. Let's go to underrated. What's the most underrated record of 2013 for you? Well, it's a little record uh, that I thought you were going to bring up most overrated. Uh, it's this humble little project called Reflector by Arcade Fire. Now, um, when it comes to like underrated, th- this was a little tough for me to, to suss out. But um, I'm thinking of this like big picture because that is the year my favorite album from a very underrated band came out. And I'm talking about No Blues by Los Campesinos. Um, they're an interesting, uh, they're an interesting thing to look at because they are massively influential and beloved in a very, um, you know, by a very select amount of people, but their best, we talked about this a little bit last week about like best comeback records. This would be a comeback record because I think for a little bit they were taken for granted and, you know, maybe seen as like a remnant of a previous era of like quote buzz bands, but uh, no Blues, I think, is their end-to-end best record. Uh, the production is just so in-your-face and catchy. Um, the songs themselves, very in-your-face and catchy. And they just kind of shed whatever um, remnant of like being kind of like a late aughts buzz band to just make great songs uh, that still maintain their, uh, you know, their view of like their songs about like food and soccer and sex that's you you can you you can make a career off that so i feel like even within the los campesinos discography it's a little bit underrated just because it's not the first one but um i know it'll never be on any 2013s list i know it'll never be in any 2010s list so that's why i'm just giving a little special shout out to no blues from los campesinos so on my 2013 list i wrote a lot about a kind of record that I described as a hangover record. And this is a record that I describe as coming from an established artist or band. Maybe they're on their third or fourth or fifth record. They're in a dark place and they're working through those dark vibes musically. And I feel like there were a lot of records like that in 2013. And these are albums that I would not describe as like the best albums of the year, but they are some of my favorites. Just because I really like it when a when a band is in the middle of their career and they're working something out. And it's not perfect, but it's a really kind of fascinating listen. So records that fall under this category for me that came out in 2013 include the self-titled MGMT record, mm. Come Down Machine by The Strokes, Like Clockwork by Queens of the Stone Age, and the record I'm actually going to call the most underrated for me of 2013, Monomania by Deer Hunter, uh, which I think is the definitive hangover record of 2013. Not just for Deer Hunter, who at the time were coming off of Halcyon Digest, which I think is still regarded as like their their high watermark. Mm-hmm. It was certainly the, the, the high point of their acclaim and... I don't know what that record did commercially, but I'm guessing it's the best-selling record of their career. Or at least it's it's got to be. Up I'm pretty there. sure it is. I, I would hear I heard I would hear stories about how like the post uh, Halcyon Digest Deer Hunter records were like not good sellers for 4AD. Yeah, so Monomania comes after that. It's a darker record. It's noisier. It's less melodic, uh, but it has I think a lot of sleazy appeal for that reason. Um, Deer Hunter, at this time too, I think represents something about the indie music of the aughts Mm -hmm. and where it was at in 2013. Because I think this was the moment where you started to see a lot of those bands become less prominent. And they were now going to be bands that like maybe people like you and I were into, but they were not going to be at the center anymore because of this new generation of people that were coming up. Uh... Monomania to me just totally represents that shift. So it's it's a hangover in a micro sense and a hangover in a macro sense. And I have to say, like this was a record when it came out, I I think I felt like a little disappointed by mm-hmm. it. And listening to it now, I feel like, oh, I wish there were more records like this. This would probably be like one of my favorites of the year if it came out in 2023. Uh so yeah, this I I think that whole group of records you could make the case for being underrated but i think monomania probably the best out of those and i I just think it's significant for a lot of different reasons yeah i gave this an 8.3 best new music at pitchfork which for deer on like the deer hunter scale that's like 
a abject failure. <laughs> so you're you're right. Even if it was a claim, it still was seen as like a significant step down uh, from them like running shit for real. Like it was all Bradford Cox and Panda Bear up until 2013. So I think you know it's not like centipede hurts style. But nonetheless, I do think it it does represent a shift away from uh, the kingpins of late aughts indie. So as we're getting to the end here, I want to make a distinction. We have two more categories. One is best album of 2013, and the other is favorite album of 2013. And I I made this distinction on you know in my column, and I want to do it here too because I do think there's a difference between best and favorite. Like there's a record for me, for instance, that I think is basically perfect that came out this year. That it's just hard for me to deny that that it's that's the best record, and I and I love the record, but there's another record that is the album I've listened to the most, and it's the one that I have like the most like the happiest memories associated with, and it just hits me different in a more favorite kind of way. Even though if I were looking at it objectively, I I wouldn't necessarily call it the best album. I think it's one of the best albums, but it's definitely my favorite. So I don't know if this distinction means anything to you. <laughs> I want to find out, but like, do you have a best and a favorite album of 2013? I definitely think there is a distinction between best and favorite because with when it comes to the best, we're talking about the albums that like were at the top of every year end list. And I get, you know, I'm sure everyone who listens to us knows, you know, where you're kind of going with it. But um, I tried to come up with a distinction between best and favorite, but this is very odd in that for me they're the same one like this would not be the case in most years this year it was because i can't like i would say that you know whenever if ever by the world is a beautiful place is like my favorite but it's like for real my third favorite uh the world is a beautiful place album so i can't really say it's it's my favorite of the year because uh that to me is sunbather it's to me that is the best record and it's also the one i listen to the most from that year, which is interesting because I remember us having a discussion about like how um, it's a really hard album to throw on like casually. Uh, but I found that not to be the case. Like Sunbather gives me something that no other record had at that time and hasn't done since even like it, it just kind of instantly render it instantly perfected a form of music which is like black metal or metal with like shoegaze and post-rock textures, it perfected it and just rendered everything else that came after it like redundant and obsolete. Like, I don't think we'll ever see another metal record elevated to that degree. It is just such a perfection of form. Um, and emotion, like I, I also joked at the time it was like the emo, it was actually the emo record of the year as well, because the entire, um, you know, thrust of it is like, uh, you know, George, uh, driving around the San Francisco, like the, the upscale parts of San Francisco, wishing he was like on the, on a lawn chair next to this really rich girl. So there's just so much longing uh, and self, uh, self-loathing in that record that it almost makes it emo by default. So I wish I had a more interesting answer, but the honest answer is that they're both sunbather. So you basically didn't look at the concept here. You're just totally <laughs> punting on it. Fine. I will be the one who follows through on the concept. No, I, Sunbather's a great choice. It was actually my number one album of 2013 in 2013. And in 2023, it was at number 10. Huh. And that's only because for me, this is not a record I, I throw on really at all. Like when I put it on, I listen to it. It's a beautiful record. It's a very, like you said, emotional, cathartic type album. I'm just not in the mood usually to listen to 10 minute black metal songs with like shoegaze guitars. But there's four minute, you know, like, there's I, four minute interludes as well where they buy opiates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a great record. It's just not something that I put on a whole lot. For me, the best record of 2013 is Modern Vampires of the City by Vampire Weekend. And this was a record I didn't want to put at number one going into my column because it's such an obvious answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is obviously a very acclaimed record. I feel like if you were to poll music critics, maybe not now, but like certainly in 2013, this would have you know been up there with Yeezus and the self-titled Beyonce record. 
it, it's definitely the most acclaimed indie rock record to come out in 2013. Um, so I want I didn't want to be that obvious, but you know I was revisiting this record and I was like, it's pretty much perfect. Like the production's great, the lyrics are great, the instrumentation is great. It everything is is in its right place. And it's also not too perfect sounding. It's like perfectly perfect within that realm. I don't know. I, I, comparing it to like Sunbather, for instance, the thing that Sunbather doesn't have that modern vampires of the city does have is the lyrical element. You know, I, I don't know if there are lyrics on Sunbather, but I have no idea what they are. <laughs> and I don't know how anyone would know what they are. So that's an edge I'd give to Vampire Weekend there. I, again, I just think it's such a well executed record. It just fits the definition of best for me. But if I'm talking about favorite, it's got to be Kurt Vile waking on a pretty days. And you brought this up earlier. This was your favorite before you made the emo revival pivot. <laughs> um, it is just such a record kind of baked into, baked, no pun intended, yeah. uh, into my life at that moment in time. It, I feel like it's a record I'd probably listen to almost every day for like several months that year. And it's an album I still revisit and, and really enjoy. Um, and I don't think it's the best record. I think I put it at number five on my list, but it, it's just a record I never tire of. And it is like one of just like my all time listens. Like if I were to like rank my most listened to albums in the last 10 years, this would be up there maybe like with Lost in the Dream. I mean, it'd be between those two, both Philly dudes. Mm -hmm making broken down sounding heartland rock i mean that's obviously where my heart is so yeah that's the distinction for me vampire weekend best kurt vile favorite love them both though yeah waking on a pretty days that yeah I, I i was almost thinking that was a prescient album as well because i think even more so than lost in the dream which came a year later that predicted a kind of uh indie rock mainstreaming of dad rock like uh I think that like more people have kind of maybe integrated that than even though there are like extremely obvious loss in the dream, um, you know, ripoffs. But yeah, I, you know, I, I try, I, if I'm being honest, I had like my favorite is the best. And also like, I feel less bad about it because like Sunday, there was always like the number six or seven album of the year on most year end lists. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So today, which is Thursday, you'll be able to read it uh, by the time this episode airs. I have a uh, profile on Military Gun. Um, you, if, <laughs> if you've been following me on Twitter, if you've been following the discourse about hardcore, punk, whatever you want to call it, you know about this record, Life Under the Gun. Uh You've heard about the hype of them being signed by Rock Nation Management, you know, like Touche Amore and so forth. And they're on Loma Vista Records. So this album is super important in terms of like being a heat check for hardcore. Like, can this stuff be commercially viable after the turnstile effect? Um, but it's a really good record in its own right. Um, it's an uh, it's. It's coming from like a hardcore framework. It doesn't sound like hardcore at all. Let me be very clear. They're hardcore dudes, but they're very influenced by Guided by Voices, by Joyce Manor, by the Lemonheads, by Oasis. And, you know, it's not a revolutionary record by any means, but it's 12 songs, 27 minutes. The songs are short. They're punchy. They have great hooks. They have gruff vocals. And yeah, there's just a lot of goodwill surrounding it for now. So this is a record I kind of as embarrassing as it sounds i kind of needed it to be good because you know this i i hate to be disappointed by something that has people excited and i think that you know i think that they hit the mark here so uh military gun life front of the gun good record i'm sure you you will not i'm not the only one talking about this record this week so are you saying that this record's too big to fail? That like big hardcore this album fail? <laughs> Some might argue that Military Gun is the picture parlor of uh, hardcore power pop. Oh man, that's a deep <laughs> reference this week. Um, I'm going to go with a record that actually came out in the spring, and I only heard about it uh, a few weeks ago after a reader named Alex on Twitter uh, recommended that I check it out after I posted my mid-year albums list. It's an album called Angel Numbers, and it's by a UK singer-songwriter named Hamish Hawk. 
And this is a record that, like, yeah, I was digging into it a little bit. This hasn't really been reviewed all that much stateside. And I, I really think it's, like, one of, like, my favorite sleeper records that have come out in 2023. And the way I would describe it is, just think of, like, the Smiths, if they had a singer that sounded like Scott Walker. That's basically what this album sounds like. It's really pretty, anthemic, jangly British pop rock with like a deep voice kind of croonery singer and really literate lyrics that are funny and sad at the same time just like a really cool pleasurable like record and i am a little surprised that it hasn't caught on because i mean we we've seen a lot of certainly post-punk acts come over from the uk that have gotten some traction in the press uh, over here in america but uh it seems like Hamish Hawk has really kind of flown under the radar. Uh, so I want to help bring him up into the radar here a little bit with this album. Uh, it's just really good. Again, it came out in March, but you can still listen to it now. Still sounds as good as it did <laughs> back then. Still available on streaming uh, platforms. <laughs> yes, it is. Again, it's called Angel Numbers. It's Hamish Hawk, H-A-M-I-S-H Hawk. Look him up on your streaming service of choice. Really good record. I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, he, he he's no picture parlor. You won't see him on the cover of NME. I actually listened to this record as well because I think this belongs in a category of like uh, UK singer songwriter art rock records that like pop up on Metacritic with like an 88 or something score based on four reviews. And I listened to it. I'm like, yeah, not really for me. But I could see why people like it, and I would see why it'd be. Up your alley. So it's up my alley. If you like my picks, I think you'll like this one. So definitely check it out, all you Steve Hyden listeners out there. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.